Many individuals try to find success on a daily basis. But what defines this success? Where does it come from? When you find a passion in your life and pursue this passion, everything can come together to form success. This is Taking Care of Business with David Wallach. Our guests will motivate you to take the next step to your success. Now, here's your host, David Wallach. Good morning, you all. Welcome to our weekly episode of Taking Care of Business. Uh, Less than two years ago, I met today's guest. We were both part of uh, McKay CEO Forum. Uh, He was a president and CEO, and I think a minority shareholder at at Unified Valve Group. Uh, The company was sold during 2018. Uh, my guest this morning is Jerry, Gary Robillard, um, Robitaille, sorry, uh, president of Asargo. I hope I pronounced it right. Asargo? You did. Asargo. Asargo Enterprises, uh, your partner in growth. Good morning, Gary, and welcome to Taking Care of Business, and thank you for being my guest this morning for two reasons. One is being my guest, but second, I know you worked all night for casino volunteering in a casino for charity. Yes, indeed. <laughs> it was a late night, David. <laughs> so, uh, and you had tea, and you have tea instead of coffee to keep you awake? Well, I'm not a coffee drinker. I see, I see. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about it later. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, when I was uh, doing my research for uh, today's show, um, I remember when we met last, uh, which was a great meeting, it was in a wine club, yeah. which is always a great place to meet. Um, you, the first thing I asked you, so what does Asargo do? You said mergers and acquisition. But then I went to your website to do research for today's show, and I see the number one is leadership services, then, of course, acquisition, integration, uh, divestitures, and turnaround. So a lot of things that you guys cover. But maybe today we will kind of stick to what came first for your mouth, mergers and acquisition. Sure. Are you okay with that? I I am, although you point out something really interesting. And the reason Asurgo was formed is to take a more holistic approach. So I've spent 25, 30 years doing deals and in business. <laughs> and one of the things... I, I, wish mean, you, I, I wish we had TV to see your face lit up when you say doing business and doing deals. I'm passionate about it, David. <laughs> you can tell. Well, but one of the things I, I noticed is you'd go to the closing dinner, whether it was a financing someone's done or we've just uh, merged with a with a competitor, and uh, pat the uh, folks on the back and wish them well, and then move on. But if you look at statistics, over 80% of these acquisitions or integration don't actually meet the expectations. So a circle is about looking at combining not only finding the transactions, closing on it, but what do you do after? How do you make sure you get full value out of it? Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Asargo later. Let's uh, talk about you first. So, so where did you come from? Are you Calgarian or moved here? or How, oh. do you get, how did you get here? <laughs> now we're going back. Uh, it was a tortured path. My father was actually in the Air Force. Okay. So I moved around quite a bit. And ended up actually in Edmonton in the mid-70s and then eventually in, in Calgary here. So my career actually started as an instrumentation technologist working on control valves and, and products in the oil patch mm-hmm. and facilities. What year was that? That was a long time ago. <laughs> well, let's put it this you way. You still look good. Relax. Thank you. <laughs> 
let's put it this way. Back in those days, they would use air pressure to control instruments, not electronic signals. Okay. So if that, that might give you a hint. <laughs> Actually, they still have some of that out there, believe it or not. Uh, however, uh, finance and accounting by education. So okay. uh, uh, university, University of Alberta, and then moved through a really interesting career development in that it was uh, many years at Xerox. Uh, learning about marketing and sales, frankly. Were you in the sales arm of yes. Xerox? Okay. Yes, indeed. They used to have the best training program in the 80s and 90s. In Leesburg, Virginia. Yeah. And actually, we'll talk about a little bit of that, of those days today. That was part of our kind of, uh, I would say, uh, plan in the real estate industry to recruit the salespeople from Xerox after a year yeah. or two. Or IBM. Yeah. No, Xerox was number one. Okay. Okay, <laughs> so you went to a good school of sales. Indeed, indeed, it's it's stuff that I still carry with me to this day, mm -hmm. uh, and it's really about how to work with clients and how to make sure you're you're meeting their their needs. And how how did you do with sales after the course? I I think it was quite successful. It it really <laughs> it set me up for a, a great career in in everything I, I I did. Even though one would not think. It's about sales when you talk corporate finance, but really it's about understanding what the customer wants. And Xerox was great at, at training you. So you weren't so much trained to be a, a salesperson in a traditional sense as somebody who would partner with your client and under, understand how you could solve their problems. So you became a, a problem solver, not a salesperson. Absolutely. I see. And you say you still carry some of it today. Yes. And now you said, uh, you know, when we talk about corporate financing, is there anything in, in that we do that doesn't include sales? Educating kids? Yeah, kids, especially with kids, kids, David. Kids are needing money from us. Don't they sell? You know, they're kind of, why? Oh, yeah. When you look at your life, like, is there something that doesn't entail sales? Yeah, no. No, not at all, especially if you're married, as you, as you would know. So you worked for Xerox for a few years, and then what? Oh, you, you want to go through the... the well, I want to know, time. you know, let's cut to the chase. Uh, when did you decide to become a business owner, entrepreneur? Was it, an, was it kind of an event? Was it a person that influenced you? It was, it was an event. Okay. And actually, it does tie in a Xerox. That's <laughs> right. So you were on the right path in that sense. Well, I prepared questions, right? <laughs> uh, well, David, what happened is my, my sister convinced my wife that they ought to get into the delivery business. This is while I was at Xerox and I was newly married. So they started this, this delivery business in the city of Edmonton. Well, that wasn't going particularly well. But guess, David, where the funding came from to get this business off the ground? Xerox. Exactly. <laughs> so, as a naive... Uh, newlywed. Newlywed and, and somebody yeah. who, who, who thought they really understood business, uh, the wisest thing to do was for me to, to quit Xerox, where <laughs> the only place we were making money. And to join this delivery business. The family time. business. The family business, which my sister had left by then. Okay. So it was really my wife and I. And What were you delivering? Well, um, it was called flower power delivery. Okay. 
And we delivered emotions, David. Chocolates, flowers, those sorts of things. And we worked for the flower shop. Mm -hmm. So when you called your local florist to deliver uh, flowers because you just upset somebody or, yeah. or some events going on, it's not the flower florist who delivers it. It would yeah. be a service like us. So Valentine's Day was your busiest day of the year? Absolutely it was. No question. No question. Yeah. And eventually we sold that business. So we sold it to another delivery service, but we sold it through a mergers and acquisition group, a business broker, if you will. And I found it fascinating. And I had already had the business, the finance and accounting background. So that's how I got into mergers and acquisition. It's after we sold our first business. So you sold your business and then what? The next then, morning what? The next morning You have to I, make, uh, you know, ends meet somehow. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the next morning I went to a company called Foundation Group Mergers and Acquisitions in Edmonton, mm -hmm. who, as I said, were the intermediary that handled the sale of our business and asked them for work. So that's how I got into mergers and acquisitions. I see. Yeah. And, uh, you know, after you got into this company, uh, when I knew you, you were not doing mergers and acquisitions. You were working, uh, you're a partner, you're a minority partner, CEO right. of, of a company. So there was a point that you moved from the consulting or mergers and acquisition consulting back into the business world. Yes. When, when was that? When did that happen? How did it happen? What was the kind of the road you took? Sure. So one of the things that Foundation Group we focused on was working for what you would refer to as the buy side, the mm -hmm. corporations doing the acquisition. So we had clients like Finning, PCL, and had a Calgary client as well called BW Technologies. And we helped BW purchase a Quebec-based manufacturer and developer of, of some instruments that, that worked really well with, with the type of uh, products that they were selling. The issue was they didn't have anybody to oversee and integrate it. So the day after they closed, they asked me to step in and become one of their vice presidents and, mm -hmm. and run that side of their business. And we grew that business substantially and actually ultimately ended up selling the Honeywell. So did you leave foundation at that time? Yes. In that group? Exactly. So that's how I got into back into the corporate world and frontline operational leadership was through foundation group. I see. And again, you sold again. Well, right. And in fact, you sold to Honeywell, you just said. Eventually. We actually sold to a London-based firm first, one of our biggest suppliers of these sensors that go into our gas detectors. And they ultimately sold to Honeywell and basically got rid of everything our parent company had but the gas detection side. So they wanted BW Technologies and that's, that's who owns it today. So where did you end up? Where Ended up working for private equity for many years after that. And interestingly, doing turnaround. So it went from BW Technologies where it was skyrocketing growth to a private equity just before the financial crisis. And they had a building product. Which group. one? There were so many. Oh, well, I won't get into that. But there, there are still many. Mm -hmm. But they had a building product group that mostly sold into the U.S. And 
we're talking about uh, 2007, 2008. If you recall, there was a small incident that occurred then called the financial crisis. Yes. And the housing market in the U.S. got hit harder than probably any other sector. Mm-hmm. And that was their biggest market. So all of a sudden, I was a turnaround expert. They asked me to go into this situation because it was hemorrhaging, frankly. And we did. We managed to turn that around. It took us about uh, six to nine months. Had to close one plant. Uh, unfortunately, uh, also had to, uh, well, they, you know, call it right size if I want to be politically correct. But I had to make some very tough decisions. Uh, but it was quite an experience. And I've actually subsequently have done a couple of other situations similar to that. But it's, uh, you don't want to go through it, but you just make the decisions. You have to, yeah, for the sake of everybody. Sometimes shit hit the fan when you don't expect it and you have (laughs) to deal with it, right? That's right, dude. Um, So you do this and how do you get back to, you know, working in the Calgary corporate world? Well, so when we had completed that particular turnaround, got a call from uh, somebody I knew very well who was working for a large uh, construction company here in Calgary. And they were heading their uh, infrastructure financing division and had a couple of very large projects on the way. So they called and asked if I was willing to come over and help them. So I did that actually, infrastructure financing in the construction area for five years. So you might be familiar with uh, public-private partnerships, P3s. Yeah, yeah. Uh, We don't do a lot of them in Alberta at the moment under the current regime, but it's a very popular delivery method. Essentially, you look to help governments finance, build, and maintain infrastructure over 30 years. And the reason it's such an effective delivery model isn't because we can get cheaper financing, and it's not necessarily because uh, we're, we're better at maintaining them, but it ties it all together. So when we design the facility, we're thinking about how can we make it as inexpensive as possible to maintain it in 30 years. So it really aligns our interest mm-hmm. with, with the owner, the government in this case. I see. Um, so you just described a vast experience in different walks of the business yes. world. How do you now merge everything into a circle was, uh, you know, you, you, I don't know when you started it, but basically you became very active there last year. Yes. Yeah. So uh, that's a, that's actually a great question and it's directly to the point of kind of where we started. Uh, a circle was started uh, about four or five years ago. So it was through a circle that uh, I had my offered my services to to the oilfield services company as president and CEO. Mm-hmm. Thus, the leadership uh, side of it. But a circle is Latin. It actually means to rise, to grow, to 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 build. And you look at my rather eclectic background. And a circle is about putting all of that together, working with a network of affiliates, some really experienced folks, and offering a life cycle approach to any kind of transaction we do. And whether that's a management buyout, whether that is raising funds, doing an integration, uh, 
helping a corporation divest themselves of a division. How do you do that and make sure corporation at the end of the day is getting full value and meeting their objective? And we're able to look at the situation, as I said, holistically mm-hmm. and really add a lot more value than your traditional advisor that's just there to get one discrete transaction done. Interesting. So my, my question is, and maybe I'm kind of thinking loud here because I don't have the question right in my mind, but do you go out and see clients or they come to you because you give all this, you know, whole rainbow of, of, of solutions or advice? So I'm going to tell you a, a bit of a funny story. Early days of BW Technologies, the, the company had an incredible instrument that, that was revolutionizing how the industry looked at gas detectors. Prior to BW, and actually in their early days, the bulk of it were clunky instruments where the suppliers, they made their money on a service model. So it's repairing them in the after-part service. So the instrument, they didn't care what they sold it for because they had this annuity after. So BW shows up, a fellow by the name of Cody Slater, started in his garage, classic, kind yeah. of like Steve Jobs, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> and decides to make a low-cost, portable instrument that was disposable, didn't need any repairing. And a competitor showed up to a trade show where BW had a booth off in a corner. And he said to the staff member manning the booth, he said, BW has the best product in the market. Thankfully, they're not in the market. They didn't know how to sell or promote themselves. <laughs> so I've been quite busy the last few years focused on one company. Uh, I would say right now, I'm not in the market. So uh, how do I get myself known? I need to go up there and network and educate people. And that's starting. That's mm-hmm. coming. Mm-hmm. So it's, well, really, it's on me. I saw you had some good conversations uh, in our wine club. Indeed. I don't know what it was about. (laughs) Wine was involved. (laughs) Mostly wine, actually. That was a great event. (laughs) Um, So let's talk about uh, Asergo. And I like the slogan that you have on your website, uh, your partner in growth. Yes. So my my show is about entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. So you come to me today and you say, David, I want to help you grow grow, mm-hmm. right? That's your vision. You want to grow Barclay Street. You want to grow Triumph Real Estate. What are the first steps you, you as Sergo means, does mm-hmm. when you get into a new client's space? So it depends what's required. Your, let's take your company specifically. It's not as if you're looking for a management team or leadership or anything like that. But let's say you want to take it to the next level. And I'm going to make some assumptions okay. or, or invent yeah. some scenarios, maybe Perfect. a better way of putting it. Yeah. I'll help you. If You'll help, great, yeah. great. So you, you, you might come to me and say, there's economies of scale if we can be geographically diverse. We've got clients who, when they call us to do property management side, would like to sign a contract where we can handle their Saskatoon locations, their Vancouver, their Edmonton, as well as Calgary plus Seattle for good measure. Uh, how are we going to do that? 
So you have a couple of choices and you have, let's say as a business owner, which is often the case, you've tried to green start, greenfield these locations. And it's tough finding the right people. You can't get more clients. You can't get the... The The economy of scale going, right? Absolutely. You know, you need a certain amount of, of, of momentum. So likely when you're coming to me, you're saying, Jerry, how can we get four or five other locations? That's where we'll sit down and understand, first and foremost, believe it or not, not the financials, but your culture. Tell us about your culture. What is it that makes you tick? What's important? You know, what, what really are your underlying values? Once we understand that, then we understand the financial parameters within which you want to expand. So how much capital do you have? How large of an entity do you want? Let's understand the business drivers. We would then prioritize which geographic markets you want to go in and what exactly what type of company you want. Because there's, as you would know, when it comes to when it comes to um, managing property, there's a wide variety of different uh, types of property. And you might actually have already pre-identified certain clients that you want to service. So why don't we maybe meet with those clients and find out who they really like in those jurisdictions? Why don't we use our network and reach out to current owners in various cities? And then we'll come to you with a list of 10. So think about the difference between that, which I would call a proactive approach, versus waiting for a sales side intermediary to come to you one day and say, oh, David, we have one acquisition. It's in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. Are you interested in this particular one acquisition? And oh, by the way, if you are interested, there's eight other guys lined up that are going to bid against you for it. Our approach is to turn that on its head. We'll do the research, we'll go out to the marketplace, we'll find you six, seven, eight, nine different entities, different jurisdictions, maybe two or three in each. Mm -hmm. And then you get to select which one or two you really want to pursue and go after. And then we'll help negotiate that transaction, we'll help find a funding if required. We'll also, prior to closing, sit down with your management team and and do a plan about how, what are we going to do in the first 100 days? How are we going to integrate this? You know, who's going to lead it? How are we going to rebrand? Over what time? And post-closing, if you do not have a team that can, can go in and make sure this gets integrated properly, we'll help with that as well. I see. Well, Jerry, we uh, we must have a short pause uh, for commercials. You know, the radio runs on uh, its commercials. Uh, we'll have a commercial break. Uh, you can check Asargo's website at www.asargoenterprises.com. Learn how they can help you grow. We'll meet you here on the other side of the commercials. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com 
The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. tuned into Taking Care of Business with David Wallach. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to dvwallach at gmail.com. That's D-I-V-I Wallach at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's show. And we're back uh, with my guest, Jerry Robitaille, president of Asurgo Enterprises, Inc. Um, So before we went to the commercial, you kind of described how you get into a new client uh, process. How do you start it? Um, I want to talk a little bit um, about, um, I would say, today's business world. And what we hear all the time is shift, change, change, shift, rapid change, rapid shift. Those are two phrases that I hear, you know, Every, every day at least five times. Um, so when you come in as a consultant to do all the five uh, you know, uh, uh, items that you have on your website, acquisition, diversification, uh, growth, how do you deal with this rapid change that the world is going on? How, or how do you find the entrepreneurs, the business owners, dealing with those kind of changing moods, changing technologies, changing everything? It's a great question. And I would say outwardly, most of us will acknowledge that things are always changing. Uh, however, as, as, as humans, we, we tend to be wired to stay in our comfort zone. As much as we acknowledge that the landscape is shifting, uh, we don't want it to. So one of the, the biggest challenges is guarding against the status quo particularly if a business is on top of its game. That's the time that you need to probably assemble your management team and start doing what if scenarios. What happens if our core market goes away? 
that one client that represents 25% of our business or if the technology shifts. Uh, you know, I can give you a couple of examples Perfect. on ahead. that and I, I can give you ones that worked well and ones that didn't work well. So let's start with the, the postal services, mm-hmm. either the Canadian or, or the US one. Uh, some might say archaic corporations that deliver letters to your grandmother. And that's really how they were built, plus those wonderful bills and invoices. An actual technological shift saved that organization. And that shift was online shopping. Today, Canada Post delivers a million parcels a day in in a month of December. It's, It's mind boggling. The US Postal Services would be a multiple of that, of course. So how is it that Canada Post, an archaic corporation, can, can make the Canadian taxpayers, in our case, $100 million a year? Well, in the early millennia, they started to invest heavily in efficiency and to retool their plants. And they were able to start handling the parcels. So the consumers started to, if you recall, when online started, it didn't, it didn't hit us very quickly. You know, back to we don't change. We yeah. don't like to change. Yeah. Consumers adapt, adopted it very slowly, slowly enough that organizations like the U.S. Postal Service and the Canadian were able to start handling these parcels. And that now represents the most profitable side of their business. Now, don't really understand how Canada Post can be profitable with our <laughs> vast geographic area and 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 scattered population and on the US side much more concentrated they lose two to three billion in a year but it'd be far worse for them if it wasn't for the online shopping trip quite frankly mm-hmm. so they, they would have gone the way of Pony Express or stagecoaches had it not been <laughs> for for a technology that helped save them but I, I can give you a story of uh, technology that's really close to home and it actually has two sides. It has a positive and a and and, and a negative shift. So, uh, side to it. If you recall back in the eighties and nineties, color film. You had Kodak and Fujifilm. Right. You had Agra. You had a, a couple of right. But they're the leaders. Oh, they, they had ninety percent of the market, and Correct. they had huge patents. And I even remember when I worked for Xerox in the eighties, we were coming out out of our Palo Alto facility, we were coming out with this new way of developing film that didn't need silver. Silver was the most expensive part of developing prints. If you recall, you might always wonder, why does it cost so much to get one of my print done off the negative? Well, it's the silver that was inside in Xerox and developed something, which would allow you to bypass it. But Kodak dominated that film development market. So they were fighting us, they were looking at patents. So while they were trying to retrench and hold on to their color film market and fight off Fujifilm in Japan, all of a sudden, something came out of the woodwork and it's called a digital camera. Well, think about how that hit Fujifilm and Kodak. That was 75% of their revenues and cash flow. So Kodak went and invested heavily into cameras digital cameras. They were going to stay dominant in the camera business, film or no film. Fuji 
cut dramatically in that area. They took stock of all of their technology and they looked at where they had some really interesting leading edge products. And they married that with trends that they saw coming, LCD screens, cosmetics, healthcare. And they doubled down in those areas. Fujifilm today is a thriving, very successful company. And Kodak- Without selling film. Without selling any film. (laughs) Exactly. And Kodak went bankrupt. So it, you know, you, you back to the shifting landscape, recognize it's there. So one of the first things that we would look at when we're talking to a client is, are you flexible enough? Do you have options? Do you, do you remember a, a book that came out just before the financial crisis, so about 06, 07? It was called Black Swan. Seem to let. Yes, I remember the book. So Black Swan event for some investors that, that might not be familiar with what Nassim meant by this. It's a fundamental um, disturbing event that occurs that nobody did. It was really, the timing was really interested in that the financial crisis <laughs> came and very few people saw that coming. Yep. And that was a fundamental shift in the business world. And it, it almost sucks some economists, frankly. But in Black Swan, he talks about having to watch out for these, these unpredictable events that he said, we don't know when they'll come, what they'll be, but they're coming. They always do. And he went back into history. So he followed that book up with Anti-Fragility. If you haven't read either book, just read Anti-Fragility. It talks about all, all the Black Swan concepts, plus it tells you how to set yourself up. Yeah. So I'm bringing Black Swan into this because I want to give credit to how Nassim says to set yourself up, which is options. Always have options. So whenever you look at going into a deal or moving into a market, Focus more on what your downside is. Don't get all starry-eyed about the future upside prospect. That should only be a small portion of your consideration. The bigger is what happens if it all goes sideways. Mm -hmm. So doing what-if scenarios. But here's the thing, David, and we've seen it in the oil and gas sector here in Alberta in particular, but in many other industries. If you don't have dry powder, all the planning in the world doesn't help. So set your business up to minimize debt. That will give you flexibility. That will allow you to ride out storms as well. That comes from your accounting background, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And battle scars, frankly. Um, <clears throat> uh, fascinating. So one of the questions I, I ask when I interview Consultants, and you know, I, I interview either entrepreneurs or business coaches, consultants like you. And, and one of the questions I ask: So, you come into you know small, mid-sized, large companies, and you offer your services and you offer the advice, and you go go through the process. How open are people to accept the change? What are the challenges you see when you have to? help someone trans, like, translate you know, you know, the, the book of advice into actual you know, action in their own company, facility, whatever it is, right? Is there, is there kind of, do you see entrepreneurs say, 
buddy, I've done it for 20 years. I know what I'm doing. Or do you say, okay, I need to change it? Where, where do you see the, the... I see I see a few different reactions. So, of course, you, you have the uh, entrepreneur, business owner who have already thought about it. They're excited. So most of the time when when they're approaching us, they already have a need. Now, they may need help defining it. They may need help developing a strategy and a process. So that's fine. Let's set those aside. I don't think that's specifically what you're asking. When we are being proactive. I'll tell you what I'm asking. Okay. Are we, you know, hard-nosed, not accepting change as entrepreneurs when you come with your book of advice? Or are we open for that? Sometimes. How, 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 because, you know, with all the respect, I think that change in companies mostly comes from the top down and not from the bottom up, unless I'm wrong. Because someone has yeah. to be a champion. Yes. Yes. And I think the ideas often come from the bottom up, and it depends if the leadership is listening. Okay. Uh, sometimes the leadership comes up with the ideas and don't even know where they came from. <laughs> so, uh, hey, listen, David, a, a lot of uh, business owners have been very successful for a reason. But one of the things that's hard to recognize is that the past is not a good indicator of the future. So what got you to where you are oftentimes will not be what drives you to the future. So it is tough, and there's a reason why family-run businesses, when they are purchased by corporations or when they go to that next level, they have to change out the leadership. And, and an entrepreneurial mindset that rolls up their sleeves and works 80 hours a day actually delivering the product themselves, uh, that's what's required to, to get yourself going, you know, pull up the bootstraps. But when you're a larger, more sophisticated corporation, you need a different types of, type of mindset. So there's that type of shift. But the other thing I would say is there is some degree of complacency. And sometimes the owner is going to get very excited about the concept or idea. But they also get a little tired thinking of going out of their comfort zone. So, you know, you need a bit of motivation, a bit of drive. And when you're profitable in your current business it's hard to decide to take that leap and take the next risk right even though long term you know you can't maintain the status quo it's really difficult to make that final decision so sometimes it's a new generation new ownership new management that needs to come in i see um when, when you you gave a title to this session today uh, to our broadcast as uh, grow business in high pressure situations and I want to tie it to one of the questions I've sure. heard is what are the in today's world what are the biggest challenges you see an entrepreneur faces uncertainty and and often people look at high pressure or challenge as oh it's the competitor that went up across the street of course that's always there but when I use the term, it's always there. That makes it predictable. And you run your business to to deal with those situations. I don't know if you've ever been in a restaurant business. Only uh, to eat. Only to eat. <laughs> well, same here. And my hat's off to restaurant owners and successful business people. I, I think that's one of the toughest businesses going. 
you've your consumers have uh, unlimited options. You've got headaches with suppliers. Uh, HR is a constant uh, nightmare. It's hard to differentiate yourself. Yet, there are organizations that have figured out how to set themselves up, how to staff up, uh, how to offer a service delivery model that makes them money. So, yeah, it's in some degrees, you could call it high pressure, very competitive, certainly. uh, But it's the uncertainty that I'm referring to not knowing when things are going to shift and how do you respond? How do you respond when one year your market is demanding your services and you can't keep up and the next year nobody wants to talk to you? That's much more difficult situation than having a a constant uh, struggle or a a constant growth. Everybody talks about technology, technology, technology in today's world. Yeah. Any other trends that you kind of identify that you see that are, uh, you know, influencing the business world and growth or, or, or any other kind of business value that you have to go through? Yeah. Uh, there's a couple of them. But I'm going to uh, focus on the rise of uh, protectionism. I, I think that's one of... One of the things that we need to, to guard against, and that ties into the growth of social media in that, I'm, sorry, I'm not sure what order to take this in, David, but why don't I, I back it's a, up? It's a, it's a free flow here. Yeah, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back up okay. and talk about, first, what I think is driving more protectionism, less free trade and free business, and then we'll, we'll get to the impact of, 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 of general global protectionism. Back in the day, the kingmakers were titans of industries. They were people who controlled traditional media like print or, or radio, TV. But with the advent of the internet and social media, there's a shift and you can see it. A lot of the election results now are, are not because of the resources that were put into place in the traditional sense. But part of that shift is what you have is individuals with strong opinions, not necessarily educated ones, but with strong opinions that are influencing through social media how everybody votes, including you and I. In some ways, we don't even know how we're being influenced. And certainly, we're busy running our own businesses or, or raising our families and don't always have time to do the fact-checking and, and research required yeah. to decide if, hey, is this a long, good long-term decision or not? So one of the popular sentiments out there is that, hey, we're, we're losing jobs to new immigrants coming in or we're losing jobs because a, a low-cost jurisdiction is selling their goods into, into our yeah. Our area. So protectionism, and it's important to note, I mean that in all forms, and whether that's a strengthening of patent laws, which to me hampers innovation, or the ever-increasing control over cross-border trade, uh, regulations is another big one. And you can think of the overly restrictive and and in some ways self-serving environmental laws, and even government bailouts, I would say, is a form of protecting, but protecting archaic, inefficient 
businesses because they're large and it's deemed to be, hey, yeah. we're going to save jobs. Yeah. But here's my question to you and, and maybe some of your listeners who, uh, who own small businesses. What's wrong with 10 small businesses doing what one large, inefficient mega corporation used to do? You know, you're preaching to you're preaching to the kind of converted here. <laughs> um, I, I see that because you know I run a small business or medium business, right? And I compete with the big whales, and I know for a fact that we do a better job than most of them because they have the big father. Someone sends them yes. a check if 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 there is a you know a red line on, in the bank. For us, it, it's the buck stops here, right? Indeed. So we have to be. Uh, way more, I would say, attentive to, to, to the changes and to the problems and to our clients. And we've we've seen it in the past that uh, we had to deal with clients of other companies because they didn't get the service they deserve. One of the things, I'm going to get on a soapbox just for a moment, but one of the things I, I don't like hearing is the term <clears throat> too big to fail. That really uh, irks me. Because governments are not there. You mean Lehman Brothers? <laughs> That's a good example. Or General Motors, yeah. uh, perhaps, uh, is, 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 a, is another one. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's, um, it doesn't serve us well to elect our governments to pick the winners and losers. Let the marketplace decide. It's much more efficient. Um, you mentioned complacency uh, earlier when we talked about entrepreneurs kind of blocking change. You, you, you talked about the shift. You talked you talk about trends. What is the risk of being complacent and not doing anything, staying status quo? Yeah. Well, we, we talked about uh, Kodak and, and, and Fujifilm, of course. I really like, I know you're asking about the, uh, the risk, but I, I really like it when I, I hear a business owner, I've met with one recently, top of their game, record profits, and he says to me, the market's shifting. We have to get ahead of this curve. Love hearing that. So complacency, the biggest risk is the market's going to shift and you're not going to be aware of it. You have to understand what's coming and not take it for granted. Uh, look at Europe being dominant in the watch industry, mm -hmm. your, your classic Rolex back in those days. It was actually within, within the, the Swiss watch industry that the digital watch was developed. Nobody wanted to look at it because they were all so invested in the mechanical uh, clock mm -hmm. and watch. So, of course, we all know what happened there. I see. Um, you know, we are almost at the end of today's uh, show. Yeah, I know. You you thought you cannot uh, fill up an hour. I think we can have another hour. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, but I have a few uh, questions, kind of short questions that will lead us to the end of the show. Um, what keeps you awake at night? Short answers. <laughs> the change in how governments make decisions. And, and that we are seeing very quickly. Huh. If you have to give, if you had today to mentor a person that wants to become an entrepreneur, mm -hmm. what is the one or two do 
advices that you give that person in order to help them not fail in the first year? The two things that are, you think, in your opinion, are important. If you do it right the first year, your chances to survive are bigger. Stay small and make sure you're doing something you're passionate about. Everything else will fall into place. How do you measure your success? It's not about the bank account. It's about how people view you in the market. If people are happy and you're getting referrals, you're successful. And the financial success will come. That's, that should be secondary. Now, as you described, you went through a long, you know, it's a long path to get to where you are today. Mm-hmm. Um, any regrets along the way? Many, <laughs> many, David, I, I could not. I need one. <laughs> you need one. Um, well, here's the interesting thing. A lot of the advice today, David, yeah. is from the school of hard knocks. I didn't just come about it. Uh, I actually lived through it. And perhaps the number one regret is not looking at the downside and being very, you can tell I'm motivated, I'm yes. enthusiastic. Yes. I have to guard against I, I have that. to say that you're more enthusiastic today than when I met you when you worked at you, the other company. You're probably correct. Yeah, probably because correct. what did you say two seconds ago? Do something that you're passionate about? Yes. I can see the passion in your eyes. If I gave you an opportunity to meet two people, dead or alive, who would you meet for lunch? That's a, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> Thank Martin, you. That's the third time you told me great questions. Martin Luther King. And? Martin Luther King. Just him. If, if that's the fellow that comes to mind. And, and it's, you know, there is a fellow, you think about it. He's willing to give up everything for what he believes in. That's that's who you want to meet with and talk to, and hope that some of that passion rubs off. <laughs> um, last question I have before I have to close the show: uh, What is the one thing in your life you are proud of? My family, my family, my wife, my kids—amazing, uh, amazing people. And I have nothing to do with it, David. <laughs> they put me to shame. <laughs> I see. Well, Jerry, uh, we reached the end of today's episode of Taking Care of Business. Thank you, Jerry Robitaille, president and owner of Asurgo Enterprises, for being my guest this morning, sharing with us your knowledge and advice on the important topic of, you know, entrepreneurship. Uh, thank you all for tuning in. Your feedback uh, via email is very important to me. Please keep on emailing me your feedback as well as guest suggestions uh, to dvwallach at gmail.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, like us on Facebook, and connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you again, Aaron, my dedicated engineer like every week, uh, Sasha, my assistant executive producer, and Mark, uh, our uh, Facebook promotional guru. Next Tuesday, March 12th, my guest will be Neil Foran and Chris Heron. Uh, we'll explore the journey as business owners. I'll meet you here at voiceamerica.com variety, 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific, your host, David Wallach. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to Taking Care of Business. Please join David Wallach again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until we talk again, make your week as great as you want it. 